So I think election politics aside, and I do think we need to put them aside, I'm with Jamil. It is the week of March 8th, and welcome to Episode 70 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. This week, we have Lauren Dealey Mahler, NSI Visiting Fellow, President of Dealey Mahler Strategies, and former Director of Legislative Affairs at the National Security Council, Jody Herman, former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Jamil Jaffer, NSI founder and executive director and former chief counsel and senior advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Lester Munson, NSI senior fellow and the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. At the end of last month, President Biden signed an executive order that could have sweeping consequences. He asked his cabinet to put together a series of reports about the resiliency of supply chains in just about every sector of the American economy, from food and drugs to batteries to weapons and rare earth minerals. The purpose of the order is to ensure we don't end up dependent on an adversarial nation like China for critical supplies or services. The order asks for recommendations from the cabinet for just about any conceivable change in the American economy to protect these supply chains. Jamil, you're still a Republican. I presume you still have some sensibility that smaller government is better government. Do you have any concerns that this project could spin out of control? Well, look, I mean, I think anytime you have uh, the government looking to uh, potentially regulate industry, it could spin out of control. But this is an area that is critical to our national security. We saw during the uh, pandemic uh, the the challenges brought about uh, by a potentially weak supply chain uh, in the case of pharmaceutical drugs, uh, protective equipment and the like. Um, you know, it took us forever. I don't even I still think it's hard to get N95 masks in the United States. Um, you know, other types of protective gear were problematic. Pharmaceuticals, obviously a huge issue, particularly the precursor chemicals necessary to make uh, pharmaceuticals at scale. Um, and we rely on China for a lot of those supplies. And China is not a country uh, that uh, has our national interests in mind. And as a result, uh, there are certain areas where we really need to think hard about our supply chain. Rare earth minerals is one uh, critical area. Uh, semiconductors is another one. Um, you know, the list can go on. I mean, you think about the advancement, you think about the challenge of 5G, right, with uh, uh, much of the world relying on Huawei and ZTE and not an American champion, but, you know, Nokia and Ericsson, uh, you know, facing challenges, uh, you know, really competing with Huawei and ZTE, who are the beneficiaries of not just of Chinese intellectual property theft, but low interest loans and support of the government, you know, and and then it can go, you know, think about advanced technologies, quantum AI and the like, Um, the list goes on. Um, And so I think that actually this is the right thing uh, for Joe Biden to do. Um, Frankly, I actually think he, I wish he would move a little more swiftly. I think, you know, it always, you know, a new administration always comes in, they want reports on everything and a plan for everything. Um, I think we know what the problem is. Um, I think that there are a lot of good bills out there in Congress, including the CHIPS Act on semiconductors. Um, uh, that can really start addressing these issues. And, and, you know, I don't think we need to wait for some big reports, but I do think that the Biden administration is headed in the right direction. Jody, uh, Democrats in last year during the campaign essentially accused President Trump of demonizing China for political gain. How is this effort different than that sensibility? So I think election politics aside, and I do think we need to put them aside, uh, I'm with Jamil. I think, uh, one, this is necessary. And two, I think pretty much everybody's on board, right? You've got Ted Cruz and Sherrod Brown both in the same place, right? In fact, you could just take Ohio senators as a case in point, right? You've got Sherrod Brown, Democrat, ardent advocate for U.S. labor 
uh, and fair trade, and Rob Portman, Republican, former uh, U.S. trade representative. Both of them are, are in the same place, right? In no small part because of the lack of semiconductor chips which is causing a massive slowdown for Ohio uh, auto plants, right? So I, I think we need to like not get like too far ahead of ourselves. Like this is a study. You could argue whether, you know, whether or not it should be moving faster or not, but like this is, this is a study and we can all agree that we need to understand the supply chain, the risk, the options for critical goods, and that there probably won't be a certain model. We aren't talking about going our market economy, globalization, principles of, uh, you know, production through the division of labor. Um, you know, you can imagine a variety of strategies being utilized here. One of those, like one might be onshoring uh, some critical manufacturing, uh, but it might also be building strategic stockpiles like we do for petroleum. It might be locking in supply chains for procurement of goods. It might be making alliances with other countries and allies. Uh, to secure goods uh, as we need them. Like COVID, COVID made this clear, but it's really a pre-COVID problem, right? It's, COVID just made clear the issues we have in the, in the medical sector, but it's really a pre-COVID problem. This isn't, this, isn't exactly, this isn't exactly news, right? So now we're talking about batteries and semiconductors and, and you know, rare earth minerals. But uh, there are a lot of things uh, that we need to take a look at and to make sure that we're, we're in a good position going forward. Lauren, are you at all concerned that this process could set off a frenzy of lobbying and rent seeking from the private sector as the big corporate players use whatever political capital they have to squeeze even more benefits out of the federal government? I think that any time you have some type of big new initiative being undertaken, it sets off a frenzy of lobbying in D.C., it sets off everyone trying to carve out their piece of the sandbox and their break here and their incentive there. And I think that in this case, you're going to have that because at this point, it's still too early to really have the specifics of what is going to happen with anything. And I think that Jamil had raised the question of whether or not it's moving too slowly, should we be moving faster? And I actually think moving slowly at this point makes more sense because we have a lot of experience in the past with large sweeping changing legislative fixes, you know, air quotes, real effective on a podcast, but fixes being run through Congress without having the proper background and research to underpin the recommendations. And they end up being a, a heyday for lobbying and, you know, pretty little ornaments hanging on trees. So I think that in this case, yeah, there's a lot of potential for that, but doing it in a smart, strategic, specific way gives an opportunity for what comes out of it at the end of the day to be the right thing, regardless of where it goes. Jamil. I mean, it's almost like we passed a $1.6 trillion air quotes COVID relief bill in the last five minutes. There's my Republican friend. I knew, you, I knew you'd come around. Jamil, let me go back to you. Uh, clearly, there's a need to look at supply chains and make sure we're not vulnerable. But how do we do it in a way that minimizes the potential for corruption and maximizes the particular entrepreneurial genius of the American economy? Well, look, I think there's a lot of ways to um, you know, empower private sector action without making a boondoggle, right? One, you don't transfer money directly. Um, you know, if you if you incentivize private behavior, right? Uh, you provide tax incentives and the like, you're encouraging productive behavior that probably would have otherwise happened. You're just, you're just encouraged to go faster and invest larger amounts. And so there are a lot of investment invest, investment initiatives and, and credits that you could offer in the tax system alone uh, rather than a direct transfer of cash uh, that would be more likely to result in 
uh, the kind of economic activity we want versus the type of rent-seeking that you're talking about. Jody, we all think Jake Sullivan's a pretty smart guy. He's a good guy. But is he really able to manage this level of involvement in the American economy in a way that gets outcomes that are beneficial to our national security. This is this is literally biting off as much as you could possibly chew. Can can this be done? Listen, Jake is the national security advisor, right? He's not in charge of the domestic economy. And obviously there's an overlap uh, on these issues, but he's not the only guy in the Biden uh, administration. Second, I think you're I think you're jumping ahead a little bit, right? So we're talking about a study and I think to Lauren's point, right? Like this needs to not be a scattershot approach, right? Like there are lots of things that we could be doing or that Congress might do, but our goal here is to have a an approach that isn't scattershot, that isn't just going to be semiconductors or just focused on pharmaceutical and medical goods, right? Like we need to look at both the goods, but also all of the supply chains involved, right? So you know, that could be using the Defense Production Act. It could be incentivizing uh, incentivizing the private sector. It could be punitive in terms of, um, you know, imposing tariffs or looking at tools like uh, uh, anti anti dumping um, trade cases, depending on depending on the situation. Right. So, like, I think I take something like rare earth minerals is like a really good example of something that's complicated because it isn't just about mining. Right. Like, it's not just about getting those minerals out of the ground, the real, the other half of the problem has to do with refining those resources. So even if we're able to get them out of the ground, they need to be refined. And you know where all the refining capacity is, it's also, uh, it's also in China, right? Like you need to look at the entire supply chain for each item and figure out like what the best, what the best play is. Like, can we do it domestically? Can we work with our allies to do it? Can we incentivize, can we incentivize private sector engagement in a way that it is profitable profitable for the private sector, because they're not going to do it unless it is. Jamil, are we finding a fault line here? Because when I hear our beloved Democratic colleagues say they want to examine every single item in the supply chain and look for a government-provided solution, it, it does, the, the Republican hair on the back of my neck goes up. Uh, I start thinking it's this is going to be a massive lobby effort. We're not going to be able to make good decisions the way our political system works. We're not oriented this way. What's is this really the best way to meet the China challenge? Well, actually, I actually think Jody had it exactly right, right? Which is, I don't think she was calling for a big government program. The Jerry thing that she was saying was, look, we need refining capacity and environmental laws have shut down effective refining this country for decades. The, the sooner we get rid of those silly laws that are penalizing uh, productive manufacturing activities in the United States, Jamil, uh, the better uh, off Jamil, we'll be. Jamil, that is not what she's saying. <laughs> That's what I heard. Let me let me just be clear. That is not not at all. I just said, and I think Lauren's got something to say here too. We need to look at the entire supply chain and incentivize behavior that is good for the United States, for our security and our economy. Lauren, I think if you look at this whole you know, look at these different industries that are having the challenges around supply chains, whether you're looking at rare earth and all the industries that that impacts, you know, national security, et cetera. If you're looking at, you know, chips and all the industries that's impacting across manufacturing, medical supplies, N95 masks, all the, the COVID related production piece that has been lacking. If you look at all of that and your outcome is, oh my God, the environmental laws are destroying us. 
then yeah, your, your takeaway is not, not very aligned to a reality, but you have hit another good talking point. Um, I think that there's a lot that we're all agreeing on and that you see people agreeing on in a bipartisan basis about why this is a smart effort. I think where it goes from the idea phase to the implementation phase is where we start seeing more distinction. And when you get past that into now there's ideas on paper and now the, the system, as you correctly pointed out, Les, isn't necessarily oriented to doing this kind of grand undertaking in a straight line. That's that's just not how our system of government works. Um, there's too many factors and there's there's so many different points of influence and priority and people weighing in and voting and whatnot. I mean, it's, it's just the way our system is designed to be slow. Um, I think that's where in the coming months and, you know, throughout this administration, as this effort continues, we'll see more of the division. But I think we all agree that this effort right now, it, it makes sense and it has to be undertaken. All right. I'm 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 happy to be the dissenter in this group on this issue, but someone please explain to me, and Jamil, maybe you have to do this, why it is not a better idea to pursue a multilateral free trade deal with other liberal democracies that surround China as a way to build a real alternative to what the Chinese model is. Why not go back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership or something like it? It is a much better approach that is more likely to succeed than the idea that a few key staffers in the White House can micromanage the U.S. economy to the point where we're no longer reliant on China for anything. Someone tell me why that's a bad idea. So I don't think anybody thinks it's a bad idea. I think everyone in this group would agree we should go back to TPP. Uh, you know, that was that was a mistake getting out of it. We should have stayed in it from the beginning. Um, and, uh, and now we have an opportunity to go back. So I, I think absolutely. But that doesn't solve the larger problem. TPP will not solve the rare earth minerals problem. TPP will not solve our semiconductor dependence on China and Taiwan and Japan who are under threat from China, right? That's the problem, right? It's not that, oh, if we just go cut a free trade deal, it'll, you know, we'll be able to get these things cheaply. The fact of the matter is that even in a scenario in which we had a free trade agreement, that wouldn't have solved the pharmaceutical uh, you know, key, issue, you know, key elements issue. It wouldn't have solved the PPE issue. And at the same way, it won't solve the rare earths or the semiconductor problem having the free trade deal. It's the right thing to do. We should do it. Nobody's arguing against that. But it's not a solution to the problem that's been identified here. The solution to the problem that's been identified here is onshoring a significant amount of manufacturing. And look, I'm not saying environmental laws are the solution to everything, but to, on rare earth minerals, right? And, and the fact that we can't refine them here, the reason we can't refine them here is 100% our ridiculous environmental laws. All right. Last question for this segment goes to Grant. So I want to pose a, a question to, to Lauren and Jody. So sort of the reverse of Jamil's response he said, you know, there are ways to incentivize the private sector to do more, whether that's tax credits or other incentives to do what they're already doing, but faster and better. What's a democratic response to avoid lobbyist capture on these issues? I, I just have like a preliminary response, which is I don't worry so much about that. I'm not saying, you know, Lauren said it earlier, like anytime you've got, you know, big plans here in Washington that might change either the way people do business or it may involve money, there's going to be some lobbying around it. It's important to remind people like the point of lobbying is like many, many lobbyists. My husband is a lobbyist representing American, you know, American interests, right? Like those are people who have interests uh, in Washington, right? Like they represent businesses, uh, American businesses, 
that have interest in, in the work that we do and in how we trade and who we trade with and all of those things. Like lobbying isn't, uh, isn't, inherently, isn't inherently bad. I think in the case of environmental, uh, environmental laws, uh, I think you also need to look at the flip side of the coin, which is there's been a lot of investment and certainly lobbyist investment by the carbon-based industry in efforts to stall like green technology and to move forward in a productive way. Like this has not been an an open market, uh, if you will, as far as the environmental technology is concerned. There's been a huge amount of opposition in this town by the carbon-based industry to uh, taking steps that would actually incentivize the production of of, of environmental uh, products. Well, let's let's be clear: steps that would subsidize those industries. To f- reclaiming my time, following up on Jody's answer there about the the impact of of lobbying and the concern and the worry about it. Yeah, it's going to happen. There's there's you know you throw around the word taxes, like I said incentives, breaks, credits, whatever the the flavor of the moment is. Um, And you're going to have folks coming out of the woodwork, you know, not just the big companies, the small companies, everybody in between, every, you know, local town, every municipality has lobbyists pushing for something that benefits them, every state. Um, All of that is going to be a part of it, but it's just a part of the process anytime you're dealing with something that's this big. I don't think you know, at this point, this is so open-ended that there is potentially room for more people to play that and jump in to that pool, swim around. But I think that it's not necessarily a problem. It's just part of the process. It's what you deal with going forward and doing it in a smart, thoughtful way is how you minimize the unnecessary and focus on the things that can actually help. Grant, over to you, man. Great. So, uh, for the last few months, I've been relentlessly lobbying the podcast to do an India segment. And so I was very excited when Jody uh, brought up the recent purchase of Russian anti-aircraft weapons by India. Uh, so Jody, what made this story catch your eye and what's happening on the subcontinent? Right. So I think India is uh, a fascinating topic, right? This is a really important country, the world's largest democracy, a very large trade tar- partner for the United States, uh, a cornerstone of our Indo-Pacific strategy, you know, a founding member uh, of the Quad with the U.S., Japan, and Australia. It has a key role to play in Afghanistan in containing Iran uh, and China. And it's also a very independent-minded state, right? Like it's keeping, India keeps its own its own council, uh, if you will. Uh, and so against like the backdrop of all of those considerations, um, you know, one of the things that's happened is, you know, India agreed to purchase five, this was a couple of years back, agreed to purchase five Russian S-400 surface-to-air defense systems at a cost of $5.4 billion, right? So this is like a double whammy for the United States. Like, that's $5.4 billion going to Russian industry rather than to an American producer. Uh, And it's a purchase that underscores Russia's legacy as a major defense supplier to India. Uh, And second, uh, it really complicates the U.S.-India defense cooperation and and forces the U.S. to decide whether or not it's going to sanction India like it did Turkey for the purchase of this same system. So this goes to uh, CATSA, which was the country in America's adversaries through Sanction Act, which was a piece of legislation, uh, you know, passed by the Congress back in 2017. Uh, and it was used to sanction Turkey just in December, uh, of this year, right? Literally for exactly, 
uh, the same purchase, right? So there was some consideration of whether or not Turkey would get a waiver. They didn't get a waiver, which has actually made it now harder to consider whether or not uh, whether or not India would get a waiver or should get a waiver for making uh, exactly the same purchase, right? So like it might seem uh, it might seem simple to go ahead and sanction India, but obviously the administration has to consider the knock-on effects of that, right? For U.S.-India relations, but also for regional dynamics, right? So there are people out there basically posturing that um, you know that U.S. that if we go ahead and sanction India, that we would actually uh, be isolating them and actually pushing them in the wrong direction, and that maybe a Russia-India alliance to contain China is actually better for us than a Sino-Russian alliance, um, you know, would be would be for the United States. So that's all to say that, like, managing this relationship with India uh, is incredibly complicated, uh, particularly for a new administration. Um, and, you know, kind of as we talked about at the beginning of uh, this podcast, when we're talking about supply chains, like, we have to consider our relationships with all of these countries. They're more complex always than any, than any, single, than any single issue. And India certainly has placed itself at the center of a, of a lot of issues. So, Jamil, I was actually going to bring up the, the Turkey bit because it seems so similar to what happened last year where Turkey bought these uh, surface-to-air missiles, uh, but they are a member of NATO. Right. They're a treaty ally of the United States. We have bases there. They're vitally important ally for dealing with our our Middle East um, force posture. Is this India thing a problem? We're not a treaty ally for them. We don't have any bases with them. They've already bought um, Russian fighters. They don't have any uh, American fighters that this could be used for intelligence gathering by the Russians. Should, you know, the average American really care that much about this? I think they should. And, uh, you know, look, obviously it's, not, it's obviously not as big a problem as, as a NATO ally like Turkey buying Russian weapons, uh, spending $2.5 billion. Um, and we'd have less leverage over them because, as you point out, um, you know, they, we, could, we could pull the F-35 program uh, from Turkey, which we did, and ultimately impose uh, CATSA sanctions, uh, as Jody points out, just at the end of last year. Um, you know, it is a larger deal uh, with India, $5.5 billion versus 2.5 in the case of uh, Turkey. And uh, we are spending a lot of time thinking about, as Jody correctly points out, India's role in the region and, and you know, hoping to see India serve as a bulwark against uh, aggression by China. It doesn't mean that we can't uh, make common cause with India uh, on China while they're, uh, you know, sort of, you know, joining hands with Russia on arms deals. I mean, the Indians have bought Russian-made equipment for decades. It's not just, uh, you know, the, the 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 jet fighters, although that's a, that's important. The Sukhoi jet fighters. Uh, they've also bought tanks and the like from from Russia. There's a long-standing uh, relationship there, uh, but it's one I think that we were hoping to break. It's one that I think we were hoping that uh, as we continue to align more uh, with the Quad um, and and against China, I think we were hoping to draw India out of its historic quote-unquote, non-aligned movement, uh, which doesn't really mean non-aligned. It just means not aligned unless we feel like it uh, movement. Um, you know, and so, uh, look, I think we can still make common cause with India, but it doesn't help their cause in building a tighter relationship with us, whether it's on uh, intelligence sharing or cybersecurity sharing or the like. You know, I've got a book chapter coming out literally in a month from now uh, that argues in favor of uh, the U.S. expanding our cybersecurity information sharing relationship with India. But I will tell you that going forward, the S-400 deal makes that a lot, lot harder. Um, and if the India if India wants to really build a strong relationship with the United States, it can't do things like this. Um, again, not as bad as Turkey, but uh, but not great. 
So, Lauren, as America continues to shift its focus to the Indo-Pacific, should we expect more diplomatic hurdles and setbacks like this as we try to turn partners like India into allies? Yes, I think that's a that's a pretty common you know, situation from a a diplomatic perspective, we have someone who's, you know, like you said, a partner, not an ally, there's always going to be challenges there, you know, you're you're incentivizing across the full spectrum of, of diplomatic options. And the question is always, how strong are those incentives? How, how, how much does the other country particularly care if you're mad at them? Um, in this case, you know, it's, it's as basic as that. It doesn't have to be more complicated. The, these are relationships, you know, what did they get out of it? What do we get out of it? What do we want from it? Um, do they care about what we want or not? Do we have priorities that align and in places differ? And yeah, we really do. And with, with that kind of gray area in between partner category, um, you find more of that that is less easily defined. And this is just another example of how that will play out. And I, I expect that there will be hurdles and road, roadblocks like this along the way um, as we refocus, focus on the area, um, look to strengthen these relationships with these countries in that kind of in-between state. Um, and, you know, there will be places where, you know, Jamil was referencing cyber cooperation. There will be places where we advance a relationship and the headlines all that day will be how great it is. And then the next day, something like this will happen and the headlines will all be how terrible it is again. Um, and that's just part of the give and take and back and forth as the as the relationship evolves. So this wasn't the only news that came out uh, this week about India. Uh, so recently they've, they've sort of cooled off on their uh, border dispute with Pakistan, you know, for the one millionth time. But uh, we found out that China was shutting out the lights in Mumbai over their border dispute. So these are three nuclear weapon holding countries that have ill-defined borders and years of cultural, economic, and political hatred for each other. Why is this not a front page news story, Jamil? Yeah, I mean, it should be a front page news story. I mean, look, you know, we've, we saw the border dispute with China really crop up, uh, you know, uh, last year um, and, and get really hot. Um, the India-Pakistan border dispute has almost come to blows, come to blows a number of times and almost come to blows uh, uh, you know, dozens of times uh, more. Um, and and look, I think India has to realize that it is uh, it is in need of a a, a superpower ally. Um, and there aren't a lot of those to go around. Um, there's one, and that's us. Uh, China's the rising power in the region. Um, and if it's going to continue to face these issues with China, um, you know, it, it's going to need somebody to back it up. Um, and and that ought to be us. And so going around buying these Russian-made missiles isn't a smart move. Um, at the same time, you know, if, if they want to uh, sort of, you know, I, I think they've had they have an opportunity. There's a huge Indian diaspora here in the United States. I'm part of that diaspora. Um, if they uh, want to uh, build a close relationship with the United States and, and sort of, you know, the U.S. has generally been strong with Pakistan because of the need uh, to have access to uh, various parts of, of Europe and Asia over the years, um, including Afghanistan most recently, but not exclusively. Uh, we, we were flying U-2 flights out of Pakistan back during the Cold War. Um, and so um, so the Indians want us to sort of back off on our Pakistan support, help work with them on China. Um, you know, they've got to, they've got to learn to play nice. And, and I do think it should be front page news. Um, um, but I think there's an important part for the U.S. relationship there. And, and it was it was strengthening, you know, and so I hope it continues forward. 
Um, but I worry that these are these are not good signs. Judy. Jamil, Lauren, I have a question for you, both of you, because I, I think this this situation with India is, is so is so interesting, right? So uh, if you're India, your biggest threat is actually not Pakistan, it's, it's China, right? Like what India worries about most, uh, to everybody's surprise, isn't Pakistan. They worry most they worry most about China. And so from their perspective, they've got to think about what relationships they have regionally. And for them, like, does it make sense to have a relationship with Russia to, to collectively counter China? Like, can they rely on the United States in that regard if it were to come to that? Like, if you, if you were India, like, isn't it from their perspective, doesn't it make sense for them to... Uh, seek regional allies to counter the behemoth regional ally to the east. I'm not necessarily endorsing it. I'm just kind of trying to take a look at it from from their perspective. I think it's complicated. I think it's a. I agree. I think it's complicated. There's no there's no straightforward answer of let me put on my my India hat and therefore now it makes sense. But I think the given their position and and as you just explained it, you know, with with China and relations. From the perspective of where we sit in the U.S., it's so one-sided. It's so, you know, we talk about India and Pakistan all the time. But when you're actually in their shoes and in it, there's more to it than just that. There's It's a lot more complicated than even the percentage of Americans who pay attention realize. And I, I would put myself in that category. It's way more, I'm not going to pretend to understand all the complexities of it either. But I think that they're in a unique position, particularly at this moment where there's so much of a sort of power shifting going on that they're smart to try and have friends everywhere, really. And whether we like that or not, it's still their reality. Yeah, but I mean, India's played this game for forever. I mean, that's the whole heart of the non-aligned movement. We can play footsie with everybody, you know, cozy up to everyone when we need to and push them away when we don't need to. It, it, it's 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 been effective. I wouldn't say it's been a successful strategy for India. You know, I mean, it's been... It, it's 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 kept them out of significant conflicts, but I don't think it's benefited them. I think India needs to take needs to pick a team, right? And let me be clear: I think the U.S. is a regional ally. We are in the Indo-Pacific region. We are an Indo-Pacific nation. Period. Full stop. This idea that they need Russia uh, to be their ally in the region is not true. And by the way, Russia's a two-bit power, anyways. It's not a real player. It's looked like a real player for the last few years because we've made them ten feet tall. They're not ten feet tall. They are terrible. They're barely an economy, right? They're a one-track or a one-trick pony, right? Maybe two now with these S-400 sales, but that's about it. Oil and oil and S-400 and natural gas, that's all they got. And so, and, and maybe, I mean, maybe that's enough, right? I mean, it's made Saudi Arabia pretty successful and a lot of the Arab nations successful for a, long, for a long time. But I will say that I think that, um, uh, you know, I think it's a mistake to rely on uh, an ally like Russia, uh, if you're going to go up against China, Russia ain't going to cut it. You need the U.S. And frankly, they need to stop playing footsie with everybody and pick a team. So, Jamil, just to push back a little bit, if it's so clear that India should pick the United States as an ally, why haven't they done it already? So what do you think is holding them back? Is it is it a, you know, a historical military relationship with Russia? Is it that they don't want the U.S. to be even more seen as sort of a, a dominating force in the area? Like what, why aren't they then like coming over to your side? So I think there's, I think there's three or four reasons. All the things you just said, the answer is yes to all of those. 
Um, in addition, I think there is a history of colonialism that makes them uh, un, uninterested in signing up for, you know, a, 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 you know, for lack of a better term, white European superpower, uh, you know, mentor, you know. Uh, and, and then finally, I think they actually thought maybe like a lot of us were deluded to think that maybe China could be brought around. Maybe they'll be, maybe they'll play nice, right? Maybe they'll, maybe we can work with them and they, they won't be this, this big evil uh, machine. It turns out we were all wrong. Capitalism did not bring freedom and democracy to China. Uh, that was a complete, uh, you know, failure on the part of Republicans and Democrats alike. Um, and, um, and, and, you know, the international community, we all thought the Chinese will play nice and they didn't. And now we need to realize them for they are, which is a threat to our national security. And those are our allies and India ought to get on the ally program and not the frenemy on any given day program. So Jody, I wonder how much of this is actually because the Indian government wants to kind of move in the illiberal democracy space. You know, this week they made a threat, an outright threat against individual employees at Twitter and Facebook to uh, share uh, data about farmers in the farmers protest. There have been a number of issues about democratic backsliding in India. And I just want to get your perspective on how you think we can either help them see the light in a more liberal democracy or deal with the fact that one of our key strategic allies in the region could be not as uh, liberal as we want them to be. So I don't know if I would say that India is intentionally moving in an illiberal direction. I would say that Modi is a nationalist that has used that wand uh, to his political uh, advantage and that that is concerning for everybody who is watching uh, who's watching India and, and sees it as the world's uh, largest democracy, right? So, you know, what do we do on that front? Like, I, I do think it's always worth mentioning, right? Like, I will never shy away from thinking that the U.S. can and should have these conversations uh, both uh, with, you know, whether it's with the Chinese or the Russians or with, or with our friends uh, uh, like India, right? Now, how we have those conversations, how publicly we have those conversations uh, may be a different question. But, you know, I, I would hope that in our bilateral conversations, you know, when Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken are, are talking uh, to the Indians and to Modi, that they raise these concerns, right, about about the treatment of minorities in the Northeast, about the treatment of women, uh, the response to um, to the farmers' protests, or or to the use of social media. Like these are always conversations we should be willing to have, and only when we only when we have them can we be seen as actually standing by our own um, by our own morals that we purport to you know to purport to hold. So with that, we'll go to the last segment of our show where we follow something in the news that's sort of going under the radar. Les, why don't you kick us off this week? Thanks so much, Grant. Uh, I'm tracking the two concurrent Ebola outbreaks going on in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, one in Congo, one in Guinea. Uh, they're, they're not very large, thank goodness. We also now have a uh, an Ebola vaccine, which is going to be very helpful in containing the outbreaks. But it's notable that the Biden administration has decided to limit some air travel from the region in that any plane with passengers originating from those uh, Ebola outbreak countries are going to have to land at one of six airports. I think it's a smart policy. It's a good policy. It's uh, probably a good way to manage what could be a difficult 
public health problem, but also a difficult PR problem. So kudos to the new administration for doing something smart. Jody. Sure. So today is uh, International Women's Day, March 8th, and it's also the 15th year of the Secretary of State's International uh, Women of Courage Award. Uh, And this is an award that recognizes women from around the globe who have demonstrated courage and leadership, advocating for peace, justice, human rights, gender equality, and so on. And I I just wanted to kind of take note of this because, uh, you know, women uh, face particular challenges uh, globally. this year, there are there are 21 awardees, uh, and what I wanted to draw everybody's attention to is amongst that group, there are seven uh, Afghan uh, awardees who are each receiving this award posthumously uh, this year. Each of these women, each of these seven women was separately targeted and assassinated uh, for their work. And so I just wanted to call out uh, two of them. Miriam Narzad was a midwife who worked in remote uh, locations. She was at the hospital when gunmen attacked the maternity ward and refused to leave her patient who was in labor. And she, her patient, and the newborn were killed um, in the delivery suite. Uh, Malila uh, Mawand was a reporter with uh, Intercus Radio and TV, and she was uh, targeted, shot, and killed along with her along with her driver in uh, in December uh, of last year. And what's even more notable about her case is that she wasn't the first person in her family to be targeted. Five years earlier, her mother, who was also an activist, was targeted and killed by an unknown uh, gunman. These are women who are demonstrating just such tremendous courage. I don't think any of us can really appreciate that, right? As we go about our, our work and we talk about lots of, lots of issues, None of us faces any any real threat for the things that we say uh, or do on a daily basis, and it's, um, it makes it that much more important that we that we take note of of the people who are really powerful, Jody. I, I'll follow up on that. Um, I also want to highlight some stuff for International Women's Day, uh, and my big number is fifty seven percent. That is the workforce participation rate of women in the United States right now. That's the lowest it's been since 1988. Internationally, a UN report found that 53% of women suffered reduced uh, work hours as compared to 31% of their male counterparts because of the coronavirus. Uh, The UNFPA, the United Nations Sexual and Reproductive Health Agency, estimates that by June, there could be as many as 31 million additional gender-based violence cases. 31 million violence cases against women. To really honor women during this International Women's Day, we have to face the grim reality that we're still very far away from equality and then do something about it. Uh, Lauren, over to you for the issue you're following this week. Well, I'm going to uh, keep our streak going with things that are reminding us of the larger challenges that we face as a nation and as a society here and abroad um, and link that back to Um, what I'm watching is what happens next. Um, In Minneapolis today, the trial started for the police officer who killed George Floyd. And uh, there are already protests. There are already marches. The National Guard's been called in preemptively, um, watching to see what happens there, given the the conversations and the intensity um, that we all felt last summer around the issues of race. Um, in our in our country and how we deal with that. Um, so yes, there as Jody said, there are those of us who go about our daily lives and don't feel threatened for our pure existence. But it's not everybody. 
it's not all of our neighbors. Some of them, some of them don't have that privilege. Um, and I'm, I'm watching to see how that plays out. Great. Last word this week, Jamil. So um, I also wanted to uh, sort of highlight two um, uh, articles uh, and, and news stories that caught my eye uh, in light of uh, today being International Women's Day. Um, and there's sort of two different stories about uh, the position that women find themselves in um, in the world. Uh, you look at Senegal, uh, where uh, there have been uh, thousands of men who marched uh, through the West African nation, rallying against the government of President Macky Sall, um, who um, has uh, sought to prosecute um, uh, a politician, uh, Osumana Sonoko, um, who's accused of rape. Um, uh, and it's raised questions uh, in Senegal uh, amongst women about whether uh, these protests will lead to the silencing um, of, of women who report rape. Um, and so uh, a, a, a challenging situation going on in Senegal right now, in part informed by politics there. Um, then you travel across uh, to the Western Hemisphere um, and, to, and just down to Mexico, um, and uh, and you look at what's going on there with uh, President uh, Lopez uh, Obrador um, and the the selection by his party Morena of a uh, of a of a candidate for governor of the state of Guerrero, uh, Felix Salgado Macedonio, uh, who's been accused by two women of rape, um, and it's led to protests. Uh, on the other side of the equation, women uh, protesting um, against the president and Morena, um, arguing uh, that the selection of a of an accused rapist, uh, not once but twice, um, uh, flies in the face of uh, the president's uh, commitment uh, to uh, to uh, raising women up in Mexican society. He's appointed a number of women to senior positions, um, and so uh, this is a this is an issue of tension. It remains an issue uh, that we see around the globe. Uh, the question of uh, the treatment of women uh, in modern society um, and 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 their place at the table. So I think important to note that and these events happening sort of in different ways in two parts of the globe uh, today on International Women's Day. All right, that's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Lester Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for being our producer and director. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.